do you have more pictures of your goats than yourself on your phone? Does your vacation time get spent attending goat shows? Can you have a conversation without bringing up dairy goats? Neither can we. So join us as we talk to the country's best breeders, judges, appraisers, and industry experts about all things dairy goats. We are John Kane and Danielle Caroli. Welcome to Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. This episode of Ringside is brought to you by The Great Goat. Show season is right around the corner, and with that, nice weather. When I think of nice weather, I think of barbecuing and smoking some meat, cooking outside, having a good time. Why not add some nice rubs, spices, barbecue sauces to the mix from The Great Goat? Today, if you use the code RINGSIDE10 at www.graygoatbbq.com, you will be able to receive 10% off your order. And that sounds just like a wonderful idea. So for those great meals at shows or prepping for shows or just a regular Sunday, think of the Grey Goat and make your order today. Again, that's www.raygoatbbq.com. Now on to the show. What's up, everyone, and welcome to Ringside. I'm John. And as always, I'm joined by the Grinch herself, Danielle Caroli. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We've had this conversation. I don't know why you think I hate Christmas. Because it took you until almost Christmas to decorate your house entry. No, there are, as of this recording, there are <laughs> 13 days till Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I have most of my Christmas decorations out. I don't have my tree yet, but that's another Wait, I story. I thought you got your tree. No, I just put out my army of nutcrackers. When are you going to get your tree? Like the day after when people put them on the curb? That would be smart. Um, <laughs> no, we typically try and get the tree with my brothers. So when they come into town, we're going to try and grab it with them. Um, so I think last year we got it pretty much the day before Christmas and then put up lights and got very festive. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We have, like I said, I have 13 days or I, since you're calling me the Grinch already, I can just steal some little kid's tree Christmas Eve. Well, that's what I'm thinking. You're the Grinch. Yeah, totally. You're going to just slither your way down somebody's chimney and (laughs) grab their tree. (laughs) Fun fact, my mom used to uh, take care of James Earl Jones, the voice of the Grinch. Or was he? He wasn't the voice of the Grinch. He was just the voice. of. He was the narrator for the Grinch. Is that what he was? Anyway, he used to take care of his dogs. He was in The Grinch, right? I lost you a few minutes ago. You did not lose me. Stop. I'm Googling this right now. Guys, welcome to a live show, right? We're in it. The Grinch, James Earl Jones. Oh, he sang. He was, he's the one that was, was, was singing the, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. How did I not know that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, my mom used to take care of his Great Danes. I don't know. She just worked for a vet. Okay. No, yeah. you you made a comment, and 
I lost it. So then I started laughing and I know there was a dog story, but I guess, you know, such is life and everybody else can enjoy it. And I'll listen to it back and hear the dog story later. Oh, well, we are, we are recording uh, this episode on Zoom this week, uh, mainly because we have the Connecticut curse going on, folks. We are joined this week by Grace Toy of Hops and Lops Farm. Well, Hops and Lops. Um, yeah, I think this, this is our first episode, like, ringside after dark. It, it, sure, <laughs> it sure feels like it. It is currently 1023 p.m. and we are just burning the midnight oil. Oops, but by the end of this, Danielle might only have 12 days to get a tree, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's going to wait until the day before, I'm telling you. Do you have yours set up, Grace? We do. Um, my kitten might take it down, so we're going to see how long it actually lasts. Um, but I can also uh, up your Grinch story because my dad has met uh, Jim Carrey, so. Oh, man, it's, he, it's all coming full circle here. Danielle, we are great at podcasting. I just want to say, I feel like the fact that your tree is still up, Grace, is nothing short of a Christmas miracle. And if it stays up, or if it's up at this point, it's probably going to stay up, I think. Right? There's only a small basket full of ornaments he's decided needed to come down so far. So I think that's a win at this point. (laughs) Folks, if you have not seen Grace Toy's cat, you are missing out he is just a treat i mean now that i've kind of become the anti-social media person i I don't think too many people have seen him but maybe i should be posting him more as we get closer to christmas on my page it's not like you don't have any photos definitely not he doesn't doesn't have his own tiktok not yet he probably should but we'll, we'll get there eventually i think michael scott has been on the rise right now so I've had to post more of him because if I don't post anything for 12 hours, I start getting messages about where's Michael. Yeah. Well, uh, spoiler alert. We're catching up to you, Grace. We have a total of like 664 followers. What up? When you get closer to my 18,000 Instagram followers, let me know. (laughs) Shots fired. Shots fired is right. And then now... John, would you like to make the second introduction that's going to happen tonight? Yeah, folks. Guess what? We uh, pulled the wool over both of their eyes. We have Kurt Schnipke that just joined the call. Dr. Kurt Schnipke, as you know him on our episodes. Uh, Hey, guys, guess what? You're both tied for episodes. So you're five versus five now uh, with this episode counting. Welcome to the show, Kurt Schnipke and Grace Toy. Oh, well, thank you. And Grace, I guess it's on now. Apparently. Did you try to like stagger when we were going to get on here or is he just late? Because I feel like I get bonus points for being on time. (laughs) No, I'm definitely late. I'm definitely late. (laughs) Kurt was out enjoying his life, uh, playing volleyball, um, exercising, something that I know nothing about. Uh, So he gets bonus points for being a healthy human being. I mean, I could have recorded this at the gym, too. You know, you didn't give me fair warning on that one. (laughs) No, I, I I think that it's a, a very fair point that, um, you know, it, you have to have things outside of goats that bring you joy besides just your goats. I, I see people sometimes that say, you know, our goats are our lives. They're our entire lives. And 
and to me that that's risky. Um, not that they shouldn't be a priority, but that's risky because, you know, then if, if things for some reason are not going well with your goats, then it seems like things are not going well with your entire life. If, if your entire life is wrapped up into your goats. And so for me, it's about finding balance and finding other things to bring me joy. That way I keep things in perspective with, you know, the, the farm brings me joy, but it doesn't bring me all of my joy. I have other things outside of that too. He's reading right off my notes I had for our topic today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kurt has volleyball. Grace has cat Farley. And uh, Danielle and I have this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we might need to work on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, we, maybe. We have to find some new hobbies. Tyranny, stop listening now. <laughs> Anyway, guys, we do have a topic. There's really not much going on for Adka News. Re-up your membership, folks. Uh, but let's get right into the topic because this is exciting to have you both on because you guys both do practice this so well. And this week, we are going to be talking about culling. And we talked about it before on the show, but we're going to get even more comprehensive with it. And who better than the culling gurus themselves? Well, I, I don't know that I would necessarily call myself a culling guru, but it is absolutely um, an integral part of my breeding program and um, something that uh, certainly is not easy, even for those of us that are, you know, all at this point with 20 years under my belt, I guess I'll consider myself a seasoned veteran. Um, so it's certainly not easy still to this day, but um, it's it's absolutely a necessity and I know that every year. And so uh, I always look at it as this is only going to continue to help my herd in the long run. Grace, I know you call very heavy. We're going to be getting into it as well. Danielle, let's start it off with the first question. For everyone, I think this is a great starting point of kind of a round robin. What's your ideal number of goats in your barn? And then how important, this is the harder part of the question, how important is it that you stick to that number? I guess I'll go first because I'm probably the smaller breeder out of all of us here. Um, my, our max right now with where we would be most comfortable uh, would probably be 15. Um, and that's like, that's where we want to be. Right now we're sitting at 12, which is a comfortable number. Uh, but we're, as everybody knows that listens to the show, uh, we stay very hard on those numbers. We do not deviate. We can go under, but we will never go over. I mean, ours, my situation has changed. I don't know if people realize we moved to this house and I believe 2017. Um, so before that, we kept our goats at someone else's property. So we were much stricter on keeping a lower number. I want to say it was around 15, 20, maybe a little bit less than that. Um, and only kept one buck at the time. Uh, so since we've moved, we've moved up to 30 does um, that we freshen each year. I'd like to bring that down a little bit, but just with the number of new bucks we've brought in the past couple of years, it was kind of a decision we made to freshen a few more just to start to get um, daughters on out of those bucks. And now we can kind of cut back a little bit harder. Um, but I don't know if Kurt wants to go and then maybe we can talk about the theories behind that. Yeah. Um, so for me, um, I guess the the first part of the question is what is the ideal number? And um, 
you know, the, the cheeky answer to that is the number that I currently have in the barn and just leave it at that. I like but, that answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, I guess the, the actual answer that I, I try to aim for is I try to aim for approximately 35 head um, total, including bucks, does, replacement kids. Um, and I try not to freshen any more than 25. Um, ideally, freshening more like 20, just because I know that's what I can handle. Um, I, I have said this on the, on the podcast before, but I do this 100% by myself, with the exception of I do have really great chore help that, that comes in and helps me out from time to time during the show season. And um, occasionally, um, my parents will help me out in the show season if I'm really desperate. But otherwise, this is a one-man show. And so freshening, um, you know, greater than 25 head, it gets to be a little bit chaotic. And um, so I think this year I've got 23 bread. So my ideal number is completely related to the number of does milking because with my setup, for the most part, it is milker driven on what my workload is and it also is um, driven by the amount of does I can feed at one time on my stand and so I have a multi uh, dose stand and with that I have two stands that I attach to it as well so I can milk up to 14 at a time but I haven't hit 14 at a time because it would be two rounds um, in several years. And I like to go closer to eight to 10 milkers. And that's kind of my ideal number. But this year we're going to be freshening 12 and going from there. We have a few younger does. So seeing what they look like, but my ideal number is completely influenced by my milkers, the kids and the bucks they're just, I keep my numbers small in terms of what I have there, but it's completely influenced by the does because that are in milk because there's just so much more time needs and then also nutritional needs in terms of grain. And so they're kind of the driving force of how many goats I have. But right now in my barn, I'm sitting pretty at exactly 20 animals and um, like I said, I think where the plan is to freshen 12 this year, but we will be selling some of those 12 milkers. Yeah. And, and for those listening, you know, who might not have heard our other episode about culling, um, just a real quick synopsis here is uh, if you have to stick to these numbers that we're talking about here and you're going over, it's a who's going to go type scenario. Uh, or it can be even I call this one because the confirmation isn't there. Um, so there's a lot of reasons to call, uh, but while doing so, I'm going to ask you guys who have been doing this a little bit longer than us, if done correctly, how fast can a program see changes after calling? Uh, for me, um, I think there's a lot of factors in it. And, you know, the biggest thing is just the quality of the genetics. You have to take in, um, into account how important dam lines are and a really strong dam line. Um, and you also need to recognize the quality of the bucks you're using. If you're just kind of getting a buck from somebody down the road or maybe out of not as consistent of a line just because it's 
the financial situation or whatever it may be, that's the buck that works for you. You might not see results as fast versus if you're using AI or driveway breeding to use proven sires or you're purchasing, you know, one of those bucks that you really rarely find that has a lot of daughters on the ground that are really consistent and, you know, will work with your genetics, you're going to see results a lot faster. Um, but a lot of it just comes down to some little bit of luck, a little bit of just looking at the pedigrees. And the other thing to consider, I mean, you know, this is where John and I have had conversations is all of my goats, um, for the most part, going back, and this is close to 15 years, everything goes back to two original does, except a couple um, additions. We've only ever brought in two Nubian does and two Sanan does, and we've still tried to merge all of those lines, where I know John's a little bit newer into this, and he's kind of going around and purchasing more. So you might have seen results faster in your early years than I did, just because you might be bringing in a stronger dam line or just animals of a higher quality where I've mm -hmm. kind of taken just a different route and tried to breed up from a Nubian who is not very nice in the sun and grade that, you know, came from somebody's backyard, but she was just a really lucky purchase. So there's a lot of factors and things that go into it. You give me a lot of credit. I got to tell you, I've been clawing my way from the bottom. All right. <laughs> like my first three does that we brought in were not the highest quote. Well, one of them was pretty good, but you didn't uh, start with a um, doe who had just about no depth of body or with the body and a pendulous udder. <laughs> no, so no, I, well, I had one that was had a pendulous udder, but I had one that had a tilted udder. And then I had one that was just right. It was like the three uh, Goldilocks and the three bears. I was Goldilocks and, um, you know, Jem was just the right one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, going back to the question, we'll move it to Kurt. Um, what do you think, Kurt? How fast can you see changes when you're calling correctly? Um, I I would echo the sentiments that that Grace said. You know, if you are if you're calling really ruthlessly, um, but still not incorporating, you know, either top quality genetics or just the right genetics um, because it doesn't always take top quality you don't have to buy from um and i know this might sound blasphemous to some people out there but you do not have to use bucks or does from the very best herd in the nation to improve your herd you just have to use bucks or does from a herd that is going to complement your herd um, better than what an animal from your own herd would uh, and what i mean by that is when selecting, especially like a herd sire, um, you know, I, I always caution people when they ask me, you know, should we keep a buck? Um, and I say, only if you feel that there is nothing better out there in the country that could serve your does better. If you think he is the very best, you know, an AI kid or even, you know, a homebred from a, a buck and doe that you have, if you feel that that is the very best that you can use on your doe lines, even with a, a strong dam line, then yes, absolutely go ahead and use that. But uh, at any rate, if you're not using the right genetics, then you can call hard and it's still not going to get you anywhere. Um, and conversely, if you are using all of the right genetics, but you're not calling very hard, it, you still won't get anywhere because you're not going to see the progress as rapidly um, because you're just accumulating a bunch of stuff, so to speak, in your, in your barn. Um, so I think it takes a balance of what I would call good slash 
the right genetics or complementary genetics and then culling with a purpose. And there has to be a purpose for your culling. It can't just be, I'm just culling this because I want to get rid of it and I want to get my numbers down. There has to be a purpose behind what you're culling for. And so maybe you are culling uh, based on a certain trait or traits. Um, an example of that would be in uh, approximately 2014, um, I was not very pleased with the direction that my herd had been going for a couple of years. I, I was stepping back and looking at it and saying, you know, the mammary systems and the rump structure just aren't quite exactly what I want. They're not what I had you know, in the 2008 through 2012 years. And um, so I made a very conscious effort to select for specifically uh, higher production, wider and more capacious rearders, longer and more shapely foreigners that were balanced when viewed from the side. And specifically, I was calling for rumps, knowing that or, or suspecting that, um, if I had the rump, if I had the foundation, then those mammary systems would come with it as well. And so I think, you know, if you look at from the years of 2014, when I made that conscious effort, um, the first year that I would say I was quote unquote back um, in, the, in the upper um, few placings on a national show type of a scale, not that you have to base your entire herd on national show results, but that was kind of where I was gauging what my herd was doing on a, on a bigger scale um 2018 so four years later i was i was kind of what i would call like back and moving up at that point and you know certainly had laid a foundation of um all of my current what i would call quote unquote best or in their prime does um, were doe kids that year and and still had you know their dams were doing well in the milking class so um yeah i, I would say you know within one to two generations, which can be anywhere from two to four years, you can see a, a really fast turnaround. It might not be, you know, going zero to hero that fast, but you're certainly going to see some some form of improvement. I'm, I'm going to just add on to what he said, just experiences earlier in my herd about, you know, if you're going to keep a buck or even just choosing bucks that you might want to use. Um, I was very fortunate to have parents that um, I would say more so gave in to my begging to go a little bit farther to use um, bucks that were maybe, you know, instead of 15 minutes, 45 minutes or an hour away, because the genetics were that much better. So I may have started with a doe that really didn't have any attachment and a lot of um, structural issues. But her daughter was a 91 by a sire who I think she's the only daughter who probably was anywhere past the age of three. And she's the foundation of my herd. Um, and the daughter from her is probably one of the best goats I've bred and produced an extremely consistent dam line just from going that little bit farther and finding a stellar buck that again, maybe didn't have quite the records on him as far as enough daughters with appraisal data, but it had a pedigree that I knew was as far as um, just access to bucks. And, you know, I was only able to use driveway breeding services at that time, just putting that little bit more time into it could make just huge advances versus what I saw from the twin to my original doe. And there was a lot of confusion because people don't understand how important really looking into the pedigree and really trying to figure out what genetics are going to work and the quality of the dam line behind them. Um, it's, you know, all it takes is a couple of 
smart decisions, maybe not the best in the country to make a huge difference in a couple of years. When we first started, we weren't using the best buck on our kids. And it's no surprise that uh, none of them are here anymore, right? But once we invested in bucks and have started seeing those kids and have um, been really taking things seriously, we've seen a jump in general appearance, uh, memories, um, and hopefully we'll really see those memories this coming kidding season. But um, using those animals that we purchased or leased um, really moved us from where we were five years ago. It's night and day. Uh, I look at the Facebook memories that everybody has pop up on Facebook, and I see those those animals that we used to have, and they were nice in their own right, but weren't my style. And I'm telling you right now, like the jump in a five-year span is insane. And I'm sure uh, you can agree as well, Danielle. No, I agree. And I kind of think about it, and I know we kind of touch on it ever so slightly with talking about data and um, we're talking about data or linear traits and um, numbers with that. But when you look at that, especially when you're looking at linear traits, they all kind of fit into this bell-shaped curve. And so if you think back to your science class or stats class, everything has to fall into this bell curve. And in that bell curve, you're going to have your animals that are going to be more or less outliers and poor representations, then you're going to have this medium area where most of your animals are going to fall. And then you're going to have your outliers, but more of your shining star outliers. So if you can influence through your culling decisions, where that big part of the bell is and move it forward to more towards your ideal, your poor outliers are only going to be, you're going to move those poor outliers from being mediocre animals to okay animals. Your main area of animals, that main section of that bell curve is going to be nice animals. And then those outliers that are more towards your ideal are just going to be superstars. So every time you can consistently move that bell curve closer to your ideal by removing animals you're just going that much fo- further to create those superstars yeah it's simple as that right yeah just go <laughs> just take a stats class that's all you need uh kurt and grace since you have larger herds do you see a big impact or uh notice an impact at all when you're calling say a doe or two no <laughs> no it's just notice just how fast i said that no if you have a quote-unquote large herd, and I by no means have a large herd with, you know, maintaining between 30 and 40 year to year. Um, but, you know, if if you remove just one or two animals, um, let's say it's out of 40 head, one animal is 4%. Uh, right. But if you look at that, bell-shaped curve that Danielle was talking about um you know you you want to be removing more like the 20 to 30 percent of the herd so for me 
that means I need to be if if I'm going off of a um, forty animal average, uh, which I'm sitting just under forty this year, um, then I need to remove approximately ten plus goats. Um, you know, and ten gets me about twenty five percent. And so. For me, my ideal is I actually like to call the bottom one third. Uh, now, if I change my math to a magic number of 30, then that means if I remove that same 10, now I'm magically up to one third of the herd has, has been called. Um, and it really is eye-opening. And, and I don't necessarily stick to a hard number when I'm calling. Um, it's not like I go into it and go, I have to get to 11. I have to call nine. It's, it's, I want to call approximately one third. So I, I factor in what does one third look like? Um, and then I basically just start writing lists and I write reasons for goats to stay and um, rank them basically. Um, and not necessarily in exactly a, this is the best, you know, one, two, three, four, right down the line. But, you know, it's this grouping is certainly at the top. And then this grouping is in the middle. And then I start looking at that bottom grouping of, of animals and deciding, you know, I've, I've given a, a talk on calling before with the Wisconsin Dairy Goat Association. So if anybody from that group is listening, you'll be familiar with this. I call it my biggest loser line. So if you've ever watched the show, The Biggest Loser, um, you don't want to fall below the yellow line because that means you're in danger of, of going home or being voted out, right? Um, and so for me, I, I have a whiteboard and you don't want to fall below the yellow line because that means you in danger, girl, right? If we go to, uh, what is the movie? Ghost, Whoopi Goldberg tells Demi Moore, you in danger, girl. Um, that is very much the approach that I take with the animals is um, I have that line, but I can adjust that line up or down. It's not, you know, it has to be eight or it has to be nine, but um, I guess I'm, I'm getting into a diatribe here, but the, the very easy answer is no, one or two animals is not going to make a difference. But when you call that, you know, 25 to 30%, um, then you, I always look at and go, okay, what is my bottom quality goat this year? Um, and then when, once I have called everything out, I relook at that and go, oh, now you're my bottom goat. That's not too bad because it's always light years, or at least it seems that way better than, than what just left as my bottom goat. And now I can look at it and go, well, if you're my worst, okay, that's not too bad. Uh, and that, that sometimes helps you get through maybe the, the difficult emotions of calling animals, especially some that maybe have been there for a few years longer than, you know, maybe kids or, or yearlings. So I guess that's the way I look at it. I didn't realize that there was any other scenes in the movie Ghost besides the the pottery scene with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. So I learned something today. That's what you got out of that? <laughs> he had this you know 25 percent. there's a line which i think is a great vis visual representation and i think i'm going to start kind of writing them down and having a line on a whiteboard but really it was the Whoopi goldberg quote that that's what you got out of it well i do the same thing that kurt does with that mostly so um 
yeah, I just, it jarred my mind and I couldn't jump in there right away because Kurt was just being so awesome. So I had to say it at the end. I'm sorry. Well, I can jump in on that because our views on this are kind of very similar. Um, but, and I will say, I don't consider myself a large herd. There are plenty of commercial dairies that think we're a very small herd. Um, mm. But kind of looking at it from a different standpoint, there are a lot of um, dairy cattle articles. And obviously, they're more production um, and management focused. But the number is pretty consistently 25 to 30% of your bottom line is what you want to cut. Um, I've heard you know, from people who have been in the goat industry a lot, I've heard 10%. So you kind of have to take into account your size. If you're selling milk, um, you know, at the end of the day, if you cut a minimum of 10%, it really shouldn't affect your production because you kind of have to keep in mind, usually when we're cutting, our numbers are a little bit too high um, from where we want them based on your barn size and your financial situation and everything else going on in life. Um, so just having less animals, it's going to make management on them a whole lot better, which is going to make the animals you have less just function a lot better. They're going to be happier. Um, you're going to not as uh, much fighting for feed and things along those lines. So definitely in that, typically I try to go for that third or 25 to 30%, um, depending on the year. And I'm definitely harsher on my younger does. And usually once we get to the older ones, there's a definite reason um, I do the same three list as he does. I do a mental one that I just kind of keep in the back of my mind until it's time to uh, make some tougher decisions. But definitely there's a lot of really interesting research that I know um, Hordes has put out there um, about the percentage and their thoughts on it. Like I said before, I'm, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Um, we talked about on our last episode um, that Tierney, our first year, of having a bunch of goats um, made a bunch of stockings for for all the goats and had the names on the stockings and little tree in the corner and blah, blah, blah. Well, looking at that video, cause there was a video showing all the stuff that we did in there. There's one goat out of, there was probably 12 goats in the barn at that point. Uh, there's one goat that's still in our barn. Everybody else is gone. So um, I think that, that's probably the 10% every year. We probably call a little bit harder. Um, and I, I'll get kind of into it as we keep talking here. But Danielle, do you, obviously, this is a, a big herd question about if you see big differences. Um, I do because I'm a smaller herd. Do you see big differences, Danielle? Oh, I do. I kind of agree with everyone. And in that, once you decide that and when you're deciding and culling a doe for conformational issues I mean sometimes we'll cull a doe for other reasons she's not getting along in our herd she doesn't quite fit in we don't like her attitude um, you know there's other things that sometimes makes a doe an easy one to get rid of first without really deciding who has to stay and who has to go. But when you're looking at them based on confirmation or in terms of milk production, it does, once those animals leave, it just elevates what you have there. Um, and that dough that is now the crappiest dough of, in your barn, she is 
what was, you know, middle range before. So she, even though she's crappy in your barn ranking system, she could still be a very competitive doe. And then those does are the ones you're potentially keeping offspring from. And it just, it, when you call hard and you're strict on what you're calling, it just, it really does change the game for everyone. I had somebody tell me one time, every goat that you keep is four more hooves that you need to trim on average every three to four weeks, depending on your trimming schedule, of course. But every goat that you keep is four more hooves that you need to trim regularly. It's X number of shots that you need to give regularly if you give maintenance shots and vaccines. It's X number of goats that you have to maintain healthy. It's X number of goats that you need to feed a certain percentage of food. It's X number of goats that you need to get through kidding season and manage and line up chore help to milk if you need to be gone from home. So, you know, finding that balance of the, of what your number is, but then also knowing that, um, the act of culling, um, I've, I've been quoted as saying this many times, call until you cry or you're not doing it right. And, you know, the, the crying part or feeling some emotion for me, I don't necessarily cry anymore. Um, not always. Sometimes I still do, I will admit. But occasionally I'll, I'll get a lump in my throat. And that's when I know that one was hard. And I've called hard enough that it was, it was tough to let that one go. Um, but she needs to go or he needs to go so that I have four less hooves to trim and less shots to give. And now I can take the time and energy that I would have taken into putting into that particular animal. And now I can spread that amongst the, the quote unquote, the survivors that got to stay, so to speak. And it's also that, I mean, at the end of it, you're not going to miss them once they're gone. You know, it's better for you. It's better for the rest of the animals in the barn. Um, so it's a hard decision to let any of them go. But at the same time, you kind of have to focus on the benefit. And this is why I'm doing it. I have both of you on here for reasons. Grace, one reason is because this year, it seemed like as we were talking, you're like, okay, I got to go. I, I got to go. I got to take another load of goats to wherever, right? So you, you call really hard. At least this year, it seems like you were calling pretty hard. Um, I mean, I think there's been a shift. And like I said, 2017, we moved. So 18 was the first year we were here and we only owned one buck at the time. And it was kind of learning how many daughters I really need to prove out a buck. And I wanted to do justice for him because he did turn out um, to be a really nice buck for us. So it was kind of understanding that, okay, we're going to keep more kids than normal, but this also means more goats are going to have to go. And, you know, that doesn't always mean that somebody's going to ship them. That could be a dairy. There's a lot of brush control around here, but some, for whatever reason they need to leave and I need to get my number down to whatever I feel is best. And sometimes, you know, there's certain times of year that's just easier for me to kind of go through and really look at my animals when I'm home longer than other times a year. And sometimes while I'm out judging more, I like to come home and look at them because I'll go somewhere and be like, oh my God, I need to raise my standards or yes, they're good, but I need to make sure I'm really that end goal of, you know, the ideal goat is kind of keeps moving and where the competition is. And I feel like that keeps me kind of more 
on edge and it's going to make sure that I um, cut down a little bit harder and I kind of think about the future and whatever bucks I'm using in the um, that upcoming year. I want to jump right in on this because I kind of leads me to my next question for both of you and John as well. But when you sit back and look at all of the decisions you have made, how are you measuring that progress? Are you expecting numbers to be there, um, you know, a gradual increase and in, I'm just going to say like final linear appraisal scores. Is it more of a visual that I'm looking for this and I'm seeing it gradually or what is the kind of quantitative way? And I mean, it could be qualitative as well, but how are you, when you look back, how are you able to decide all right, I'm moving in the right direction. I constantly keep a list of goals that I expect, you know, this buck is supposed to bring in X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that doesn't always end up being what they improve, but I kind of very quickly try to figure out, okay, what is this buck doing for me? And if he's bringing anything back a little bit, like I just um, used a buck that started narrowing up prompts and I am a general appearance freak when it comes to my own goats and that has to be correct. I want wide level rumps. So it's one of those things where, you know, I kind of look at each line and what each buck is producing. And that was a pretty easy one for me to go, okay, he's fixing a lot of things, but I need to make sure I'm actually seeing a positive difference in his daughters. And maybe it's not as much a a number value just because you kind of have to take into account linear appraisal is one day that that person is looking at that goat going to a show is one day that they're looking at the goat. So I'm constantly, um, like he said, he has a physical list. There's pretty much always a mental list in the back of my head where I'm like, okay, she's starting to decrease or go back in that rump with, but I also don't see an improvement in X, Y, and Z. And that kind of tells me, okay, they're going to go on that list of animals that needs to leave where I might keep that smaller percentage from a certain buck. So I kind of break it down as to you know, I want to keep a better, a decent number from each buck to prove them out. Um, but at the same time, I, I kind of have to have that line of how many do I actually need to keep around and how many do I need and what the improvements are in those better ones. Grace, we must have gone to the same school of breeding goats or something, because I think we agree on a lot of things. Um, yeah, you do. <laughs> when we have chatted off air. Um, but for me, I, um, I do gauge kind of my um, success on my own personal eye and um, I'll, I'll set a goal. It's not necessarily a one-year goal. It's usually a three to five-year goal of I want to improve a certain trait um, or two or three traits. And I usually don't pick more than two or three because it's very rare that you find um, a a buck that will improve more than two or three traits. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. It certainly does, but it's rare, at least for me in my experience for a buck to improve more than that. And so I try to, uh, that's why I, I do a photo shoot of nearly all of my goats every year now at this point. And I'm able to look back at not only the animals themselves, so I can see how they're maturing from year to year, um, but I can see what a certain dam line is doing in their maturity patterns. And I can very quickly uh, compare them to one another. And I do that photo shoot 
with the exact same backdrop, the exact same setup, the same photographer. We, we try to keep everything as similar as possible, not only for consistency. You know, when you look at pictures of my animals, you're not getting distracted by multiple different backgrounds. You're seeing the same thing over and over. So then it, it draws the focus for the animals. So there's a tip for those of you out there, an unintended tip when we're talking about culling. Here's your photography lesson 101. Use the same backdrop and then it helps highlight your animals more. Um, but getting back to the point at hand, I can look at those photos from year to year and see those maturity patterns and see uh, what has improved over the years or in the generations from dam to daughter and then down to granddaughter as well. Um, and I apologize, I've got a new puppy that's deciding she wants to be on the podcast here. Um, but uh, I, I also then, I, I know that it's only one show and it's one day and two judges' opinions, but I do kind of like to use the national show as kind of a, a gauge of sorts, um, just, just to kind of keep things in perspective on a national scale. Uh, because typically, I, I know not every Oberhasley breeder is going to be at every national show. That, that will never happen. But you tend to start bringing out the best um, from, you know, either across the country or at least that geographical region. And then, you know, occasionally pull other regions of the country as well that, you know, the diehards, they go every year or nearly every year. And so, um, you know, when you can look at... Um, results that way and say okay well you know in in 2014 i set a goal of improving certain traits and i did that because i wasn't particularly pleased with not just from a placing perspective um but just when i had to when i had to really step back and self-analyze after the places and go why were they placing there it wasn't just about the number it was why were they there and i listened to the judge that you're very carefully in their analysis and their assessment of my animals and why there were animals in front of them. And being self-aware and self-reflective is super critical um, to looking back and go, yeah, they deserve to place there. And here's why, okay, here's the next step in setting the goal so that I can move forward in the line. And, you know, like I said, in, in 2018, then I, I had a few more um, get up into the, the higher placings in the top five or 10. Um, and then continued to set, you know, in 2018, my goals, you know, were different than they were in 2014. And then, um, you know, in setting those goals in 2018, then looking at the, the results there comparatively to the results of, say, the 2021 or 2022 shows, where I had, um, you know, an even greater number of animals um, getting up into that upper echelon at the national show and competing there. And, Again, that, that's not meant to be a brag in any way. It's just meant to show the progression and how I can look at that and kind of gauge the success of um, very purposeful selections in what I was breeding for and what I was doing and, and then what I was also culling for as well. That's Everybody has different kind of criteria and that track of how they're deciding they're successful in their culling endeavors or maybe they are looking back and going, okay, maybe I didn't do it right and evaluating that. And so I think that's a great way that you can decide, you know, obviously you have your eye as well and go, okay, I like what I'm seeing more, but 
you also have some sort of kind of data to go to just reaffirm what you're doing and what you're seeing in your herd. Um, I, I think I'd like to just quickly add, um, I know I can, be, I can be the talkative one, um, but it's the, the professor. <laughs> but um, I also looked at not just show-ins, but I, I, I chose in 2014 to want animals that were more productive and specifically that could fill their udders um, in a shorter amount of time. Um, and what I mean by that is I would be, you know, I, I certainly will put the, the typical national show fill in my does or, you know, at, at larger state fairs, I will certainly put more than these 12 hours. But, you know, for regular club shows, if they change the order, I can be happy with my goats are full at 12 hours or they're, they're full at 13 hours. And I don't have to put a excessive fill on them at, at smaller shows. And, and I wouldn't necessarily have to at the big shows. You just do because you don't want to get beat by, you know, an extra hour of milk, so to speak. Um, and so um, at any rate, I set a goal for production. And then I, uh, within the next year or two, I believe was my first year back on um, DHI test. And so then I could look at that as very objective data um, to go by, am I improving my rolling herd average um, for productivity and looking at specific um, doe lines for not only productivity, but I've actually looked a little bit at components as well. And so an example of that is this year, I'm specifically using one of my bucks. Um, I'm using him on certain um, breedings, but I'm using him because his dam has consistently had my highest components and her daughters have consistently had higher components. And so I, I'm, I've chosen to use a buck from that family to add in not only the productivity from his dam, a multiple top 10 uh, doe, but also the components because she's also been multiple times top 10 in components as well. And so, you know, looking at other forms of objective data, not just show performance. I just want to go back to something you said before that kind of brings this all together because I'm convinced you're reading off of my notes, but, <laughs> but kind of, you have to be self-aware um, and really just have a lot of self-reflection on your herd. And it goes back to knowing how many animals you can manage that they're all going to be doing their best, but it also is being able to look at your goats and say, you know, okay, I really do need to work on this because sometimes, you know, we, we want to overlook things because it's this line or, but it's, holding yourself accountable to always be kind of improving your knowledge of type or production or whatever it may be and really looking at your goats and saying okay well I need to work on thorough placement or rump width or front end or whatever it may be instead of making excuses and that goes to when you're culling to when you're bringing in a buck um, that is a really easy way even to improve your herd faster but to make those subtle changes whether it's again improving those components or improving a certain aspect, just making sure you're constantly aware of those weak spots in your herd just helps that um, be a lot easier. I think that's great. And I think that kind of both of you touched on something that I want to ask about be as our next question. And that is, what do you think about keeping does to maintain, sorry, excuse me, to maintain certain lines or to keep certain genetics in your herd? Are you giving passes to animals? Because if you 
get rid of her, it destroys a line or concentrating on certain lines? Um, for me, I, I have certain families um, that tend to perform better in certain areas. And so my, my entire herd um, goes back to technically three does, but um, that's only because I, I brought in um, a new, a new female line that has, has um, been uh, productive in, in producing daughters for me in 2017. But prior to that, um, everything come, stems from two does, two, two very strong doe lines. And even the, the one that I brought in in 2017, I've purposely bred her to sons from one of the other two doe lines so that all of her offspring are technically related to the original two doe lines as well. Um, and so in the grand scheme of things, uh, I guess I look at it as not necessarily losing a particular um, family or doe line because those two doe lines are alive and well in 100% of my herd of every single doe, except for that, that, uh, the doe that I brought in in 2017, every single doe in the herd goes back to one of those two does, if not both of them. Um, and I, I believe there's only one doe that does not go back to both of them. Um, and so uh, it's, it's not so much losing a family, it's losing a branch of the family tree, perhaps. And, um, while I used to, be a little bit more emotional in, oh no, this is the last of the, the S line or the B line or you know whatever family line it was. Um, I guess I look at it as if she's never going to be that great one that I, I keep nostalgically, you know, placed on a pedestal in my mind for whatever reason. I need to come to terms with that. And again, it comes back to being self-aware of, you know, certainly when they're kids, you can say, oh, she's got all the promise of her dam. And, you know, then as either dry or milking yearlings, you can say, okay, she's, she's either maturing the same way as her dam or maybe the same way as her sire's dam. Um, but usually by the time they freshen, if they don't freshen um, at the same quality um, as their dam, what I have found is it doesn't matter if I give them a fair pass for two or three more years there. If they're not already at least at the level their dam was at that age, they're not going to get there um, is, is my experience. And again, there are certainly exceptions to that. It's not a, it's not a hard pressed rule, but in my experience, hanging on to something emotionally um, that if I were, if I am able to very self-aware step back and go, you're not your mom or you're not your, your dad, um, then I just get rid of them because they're never going to get there. And inevitably three months later, when it comes time to be doing, you know, whole herd hoof trimming or whole herd vaccines, I don't miss them. Yeah. I definitely think that's, it comes down to, you know, knowing your space and your financial situation. And do you want to trim those extra hooves? Um, I think there's also a place for kind of in my herd, I've had two situations where I kind of do like to challenge myself a little bit. Um, and these are kind of things I don't tell people. It's just, it kind of keeps me interested in my breeding program to see if I can really achieve what I'm looking for and I'm seeing the right things. Uh, but I have one dam line that 
you know, it goes back to my original dough and it's kind of a branch off of it um, that I don't have much of. So I pretty much kept one dough from it. And then once I get a daughter, I usually move the dam on um, trying to see those improvements, but they're not big doughs. And, you know, a lot of the time we know in the show ring that sometimes those smaller doughs just get lost in the mix, even though they might be more correct. And that's kind of the situation with them. They're not quite as long body. They're not as tall. Um, they're maybe not as angular just because they're a little bit of a shorter dough, but they have the correct pieces that I want. So it's been kind of a personal challenge of mine to try and get a little bit more length and dairiness added onto them, which has been um, going really well. But I also had another situation where I bought a very expensive buck with a really good pedigree and he really didn't turn out. Um, and, you know, I used him very heavily hoping these genetics would work. I'd waited a long time for the buck and I had to be self-aware and realize this buck is bringing my goats back generations. He is ruining rear legs and rump structure and front ends. And the daughters just, they don't have the rump to support even the best of the mammaries from him. So he went and I shipped just about every one of his daughters and I held on to, I believe we have four left and two of them are twins out of my best doe and they're the weaker of the does. Um, but I've kind of had to just tell myself, you know, these does aren't going to stay forever. They'll move on and be backyard milkers probably, but I'm trying to find those, find a buck that's really going to match them probably through AI and looking at those proven bucks and bucks that have more daughters um, on tests and everything to be able to make those bigger improvements faster. And, you know, it's an emotional thing. It's a personal thing, but you also need to keep in mind when they really get to that bottom 10% or 20% and I have a daughter, it's time to move them on and make those tougher choices. Um, but it's just a way I'm able to keep some of those lines that might have um, value to me. And they, they do have really good pedigrees and everything on them. And I think down the line, it'll work out. But I, I also have to keep in the back of my head, this is taking up space, this is taking up grain. Mm -hmm. So I need to know when to make that choice to let them go. Yeah. Um, I feel you a hundred percent there. Like I, I always say on here on the podcast and uh, to people, you know, it's, it's, I have one sentimental animal and that's Jen, my, one of my, my only foundation doe left, right? Everybody else got cold. Although she's a nice animal herself, she's done a terrible job for me for reproducing herself or better. Right. So I've never been sentimental with her daughters or sons. I don't even register her sons. Um, it, they ha get moved on after first or second freshening. Um, and I have a daughter now that's probably the best out of her, which I'm excited to see freshen next year or 2024 or three. I don't know math. Uh, but, you know, I'm not in a rush because I'm like, well, <laughs> they haven't worked out before. So I don't get sentimental with my dam lines, although I'd like to think I do. I mean, I do have a lot of animals related to Jem because I've kept daughters and then kept their daughters, but I just, I have to, I'm playing catch up, right? Um, I haven't been doing this long, so I'm trying to get my stuff up to snuff, so I have to be pretty cutthroat, and Tierney keeps me cutthroat. Uh, Daniel, what do you, what do you think? Are you one of those, I mean, I know you started out with a couple does and you still have animals uh, from them, uh, do you stay uh, within those lines or does it not matter when you're thinking about calling animals? Hey guys, something weird happened with Kurt's audio from this point of the recording onward. 
Now you can still hear Kurt. It's just a little echoey. Um, so just wanted to warn you guys. I tried to fix it in post, fixed it a little bit. So it's better it's listenable and trust me, you want to hear what he has to say, but yeah, things happen. Unfortunately, when you're recording remotely, I'm in New York, he's in Ohio, things happen. So yeah, uh, sorry about that. Um, definitely wasn't his fault, just something with the system we were using. Uh, but you can still hear him. Uh, we all, the rest of us, sound normal. So uh, again, sorry about that. But yes, on to the rest of the show. So I had the realization and it kind of, my heart kind of worked out like Kurt's as well. And that I started with two maternal half-sisters and everybody in my herd currently descends from one of those two does. And so there was a few years where I had to call very hard and a lot of the does were, oh, this is so-and-so's last daughter or this is, um, this is the last one of this branch here. And then I started realizing that between using some of my own bucks to kind of merge the lines again and do a little bit of line breeding and you start plotting them on that family tree and you see everything and you realize pretty quickly, you can say, okay, maybe I'm able, or I'm selling this doe's daughter, but look at her granddaughter or her great granddaughter here. And so as long as you, if you want them to be represented in the herd, I think your mindset has to be, maybe it's not the daughter, but it's the granddaughter that you're going to see this doe repeated in. Um, or this is the direction, like this is the gift that that doe gave. It might not be an immediate gift, but you can get it somewhere else. And that really helped me because the sentimentality of, oh, this is so-and-so's last daughter. It's that last daughter didn't, isn't what I need. And if I sell that last daughter, it'll allow me to keep this great granddaughter who is exactly where I need to be. So in my mind, one of the best things I was able to do in terms of like figuring out how to sell which, or, you know, which goats I can sell and still have some of that like sentimentality for where my herd has been was that idea of they're pretty much all so-and-so's something. And so if you stop trying to connect that and go, okay, this is this, and this is that, it makes life so much easier and it allows you to just move your herd and advance your herd that much faster. I think culling kids is just as much an art as culling milkers. And I think even very novice breeders, if, if they've remotely looked at the scorecard or linear appraisal um, uh, criteria or, or outlines, um, or even, you know, if they're even if it's a backyard milking farm, they can look at production um, as they're sold out of weight. But if you, you know, calling milkers is is an easier art, in my opinion, because you can see the utter, or you can see the volume of milk, or you can see the attachments or the you know, whatever structural trait you're looking for, or productive trait you're looking for. Uh, calling kids is a little bit more of a finesse art that takes a little bit more of a discerning eye to you know be able to look at um, 
a, a kid and say, this is the one that I think is going to turn out. And I get frustrated with breeders new or, or seasoned that, you know, say, oh, well, keeping kids and, and selecting kids that turn out to know is a crapshoot. And I go, no, it's not. It, it's not a crapshoot because if you know what you're looking for and you really have a dedicated and purposeful eye, um, you can start to see certain traits. You know, when you when you look at your kids from the rear, if the teeth point outward, nine times out of ten when they freshen, the teeth are going to point outward. When you look at your kid, if the escutcheon is not wide and highly arched, um, sometimes we call this an upside-down U-shaped arch, if it looks more like a, an A-frame or a TB in there, Nine times out of ten, the rear udder is going to follow that same shape. Now, certainly attachments sometimes can be a little bit more of a gamble, especially if it's from a new or an outside or an unrelated buck. But, you know, looking at structural traits, uh, you know, it's, you're not going to change things a whole lot from kid to um, milking age. And so I think culling kids is, is such an integral part of culling as well. And so, again, I look at my, my kids every year, and I go into it saying, I think I'm going to keep kids out of XYZ does or XYZ breeds. Um, and, and so that kind of helped me determine, like, when buyers come to me for wanting to make kid reservations, I can immediately tell them, well, hey, this is a pretty consistent doe for, for me. Her daughters consistently turn out or, or, you know, most of the time turn out. So I'm going to be keeping the first or maybe even the first insect token out of this doe and this doe and maybe now her daughters and that type of thing. But uh, so I typically will keep between eight and 10 kids. And what I try to tell myself is, okay, the, the first kids that I keep are from the does that I know that their, their doe kids have a higher percentage of being towards the upper echelon of that bell curve. So, um, you know, it's no secret right now that the strongest doe line in my barn is the V-line. Um, and, and so the V-line doe kids get kind of the, the first priority access to stay. And then after that, I start looking at, and usually that kind of gets me to that six or seven number. After that, I start looking at the kids and go, okay, which one is just my very... I, I shudder to use this word, the F word, my favorite. Um, uh, and so rather than necessarily my favorite, it's which one do I think is the, the nice kid, just the, the all-around nice kid. And it doesn't matter um, who her dam is, who her sire is, just looking at them, which one, if I could only pick one, which one would it be? And sometimes that kid already falls on the list of, you know, being from a certain uh, don't mind that okay well great that's all one and the same and sometimes it's a different one and so then I try to say okay well she gets to stay as well especially if she is outside of that bell curve where I tend to call that like the extremes so I have you know your your average traits that all of these kids look like they look like they look like and then bam there's that one that just really catches your eye she's the extreme that's why she catches your eye. That's why she jumps out at you, especially if it's always the same doe. She's the extreme. She's she's not the same trait or the same balance or the same whatever. And so I try to keep that one because, uh, especially if it's an extreme in a good way. And then if I have a crossover that magic number of kids that I'm going to keep, 
Then I tell myself, I need to get one emotional key that maybe the kid doesn't look quite as nice, or maybe she's the runt of the group of three or four, or maybe she's a little bit slower maturing the rest of the kids in the pen, or maybe, you know, you can look at her and go, she's not really impressive, but she's from XYZ Doe. That's the emotional keeper for that year. But I, I tell myself that emotional one, she's usually kind of, if, if in one year, um, if I've still kept her that long, if she still hasn't changed from whatever I was kind of on the defense about, then she's the first one to go when I have to cut that that bottom with her. She's instantly on that list of like, you didn't wow me as a kid, you're not wowing me as a like whether that's milking or dry, it's your turn to go. Um, and that's an easy one to just immediately put on your list at the bottom of third. And then you start whittling into the list of, you know, who you thought was more promising or who you thought was from a particular doe line. You know, maybe that one that's extreme and depression, you're like, well, you were extreme in a certain trait, but you don't match the others with that other, or, you know, now your feet or your romper or whatever it may be. So that's kind of how I look at culling with kids too. And again, um, you know, calling kids just as much art as it is calling your lives It's definitely an art and one that does take a keen eye uh, to be able to pull it all together and get you down to where you need to be. Grace, what, what do you feel as far as uh, calling kids? Um, I, I kind of ask myself a few questions. And, you know, the first one was, what was the intent of the breeding? And is that kid what I expected? Maybe does it not have the dairiness I was looking for, the things that I'm, you know, really trying to work on at that time? And I also take into consideration, what is my herd need right now? Because you know, I could have a whole group of nice kids, but I need to get that number down to a reasonable one. And if I have a doe that's maybe just, she doesn't have the length of bone pattern that I want, maybe that's the one I need to sell at that point and focus on the doe kid that's going to break my herd a step forward. The other thing to consider that makes um, just cutting down numbers really easy is I look for the kids that aren't as thrifty or that have more issues usually, you know, and this has been said to me by a lot of people who have bred goats for a long time is usually that follows them throughout life is they're always not as thrifty or they're always the smallest one in the group or they always have that cough and just having to be tough on numbers. I will use that as a, a decision to move a kid out of the herd and just get my numbers down a little bit by a little bit. Um, but it's really just focusing on my goals and you know, I'm very fortunate, my Nubian line, especially my American line breeds very honest. And, you know, I've gotten good and I keep a lot of notes, even if it's just scribbling in a notebook and I take a ton of pictures and just save them on my computer as well. And it's kind of learning to look for those things that really stuck with them from a young age. Um, and that's helped me a lot to kind of be able to predict just as a breeder, okay, this is the kid that I think you know, maybe she'll grow out of this, or I saw this in her mother, and I, you know, kind of want to stay away from that trait. Um, so it's kind of, and it takes a long time to learn those things, and it, it is specific to your genetics, how they grow, and what you can give a little bit more grace on, and things you have to be harsher on, but just really kind of sitting in the barn and looking at them, um, whether they're kids, they're yearlings, whatever it is, and just keeping mental notes, keeping physical notes. I found that to be the most helpful for me, is just being confident and my program and my genetics and just understanding that I'm going to know it the best, no matter if that kid was grand champion, I know in the long run, she may not be the best one in the pen for my herd. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people fall in that trap as well when they have a kid when they're their dry leg, restricted leg. Uh, they're like, well, that one went grand, so obviously uh, it's going to just mature so well. Um, and I've had plenty that got a restricted leg and they're not in my barn anymore. Um, now, I, I wonder if you guys are going to differ on this. How do you guys feel about calling first fresheners versus second fresheners? Are you going to sit on them or are they going to go? Because you see online all the time on Facebook, uh, she's got a blah, blah, blah udder, but she's a first freshener. Um, where when I'm looking at whatever animal it is, or maybe even my own, uh, I see maybe a poorly attached udder or a very little capacity or even for a first freshener uh, or, or X, Y, and Z. And um, I'm more likely to move them on because I've been, I've been, buzzed before when I've sat on animals thinking they needed a second freshening and they indeed did not. Um, I mean, it's, it kind of depends on the animal. And I think the first thing you have to take into account is the situation. I mean, okay, do I have a doe that's maybe really lacking in body, but she had triplets, you know, and you kind of look at the mammary system. Okay. Maybe I need to give that outer floor and the medial a little bit more time to kind of figure itself out. And I'm almost fortunate in a way that I need the extra milk when I have um, all the kids in the spring that, okay, I can hold on to her a little bit longer just until some of the kids move out. And that gives me a chance to give her a couple of weeks or whatever it may be before I need to make decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and it's the same with, you know, I'll give grace to a doe that doesn't have a lot of capacity, but she got a single and she has the attachment. You know, and that goes back to, I always keep pictures when they freshen and throughout their lactation of the dams. And I can go back and look at that pedigree and be like, okay, I know what she scored that year and, you know, kind of see how everything shifted. I can look at the pictures and see how their dams changed. You know, I've had that one dam line that I hold on to. um, That's a little bit just of a smaller line. Really the original dough of that line, she had next to no milk when she freshened, but she had all the pieces and I just kept looking at her and looking at her like I can't get rid of her. And we had extra space at that time. And I lost her as a second freshener, but she turned out to have one of the most correct otters I've probably bred. And the same goes, even when you're looking at animals to purchase, you know, I've kind of taken a little bit of a risk and I've bought um, buckets from younger does and it has worked out. It's just kind of looking for those pieces and I know they need to have area of attachment. I know the teat placement has to be closer to ideal. I don't want them to be way out, but things could change a little bit. They have to have the smoothest and extension of four udder. Um, but it's mm-hmm. kind of just doing a lot of research and looking how those mammary systems or how those um, the type on them changed in the, the dam line behind them and even looking back at the sire's female relatives to kind of make that choice. Yeah, I, lo- I love going and researching young animals um, or first fresheners and buying sons from them. It's kind of a hobby of mine. Uh, Kurt, what do you think about the whole uh, first freshener, second freshener debacle that people find themselves in? Well, for me, again, I think it comes down to um, knowing what that female line and then kind of overlaying those thoughts of the female line or dam line with what the sire's um, maternal relatives, what their lines did. Um, and so 
again, going back to taking a lot of photos of my animals and so I can compare them and see what did this dose dam and grand dam and maybe great grand dam, how did they mature from first freshening to second freshening? You know, if is it just a matter of productivity? Um, and I know that in the next year, this family always turns it on and freshening too. Okay, I'll, I'll maybe give her a fair pass if all of the other traits that I want are there. Um, versus if for me, um, otters are, are a bit of a um, hot ticket item here. Um, not only from a productivity standpoint, because I, I will give first freshers a fair pass. They don't quite meet productivity um, kind of guidelines that I have set. Uh, and, and certainly the productivity guidelines are changing and increasing year after year as I, as I try to increase my rolling for average. But I also have to take that perspective and go, okay, maybe she's not the most productive though, but she's got the most exceptional general appearance or she's got the most exceptional front end and I need to keep her for, um, you know, potentially using a son to get that trait. Um, but a couple of things that, that definitely stand out for me as far as that is a very callable offense, so to speak, is any personality issues. Um, I'll give you two, maybe three weeks to sort it out. I, you know, first freshers can, can be a little cantankerous with getting on stand and learning what it is to be milked regularly. But after that two to three weeks, if you haven't figured it out and, and we aren't finding a way to come to terms, I hand milk most of my does almost exclusively, in fact. And so, um, you know, when I'm getting up there in the, in the, the thickest part of kidding season and I'm hand milking 18 or 19 or 20 does, um, if, if I can't get you to calm down and you're kicking at my hand every other squirt, uh, you're probably going to find yourself on the call list. And um, for me, unless I have somebody that's willing to come get you immediately, um, I, I'm, I have no qualms about taking them. To, there's an Amish market. Uh, it, it's a bit of a drive, but I get good prices there. And, um, you know, I have, I have no issue with taking attitudes there. Um, so attitude and personality is absolutely a um, three strikes and you're out immediately type of an offense. Mm -hmm. And then for me, like I said, others are a big thing. And so not necessarily productivity per se, but certainly attachments and or T placement. Um, for me, I have found those never improve for my herd and my town base. So if they are not there um, right away, then they're not going to get there. Um, and so, you know, that's another one that can very easily get you on the, the call list. I've been fortunate in, in that I've called a lot of that out. That usually that's kind of a one-off situation. If there's, you know, now, a, a, you know, God forbid, a pocket and then a four-hour, which hopefully I've gotten rid of all of those in my herd. But um, every once in a while, one will pop up again on a first freshener and, um, or a low rear udder that's just not typical of, of most of my does now at this point. And so those are very quick, very easy, like you're out of here. And those does I do not sell, um, even as backyard family milkers for the most part, because I don't want them contributing to the overhousing gene pool. Um, I have, have very publicly said that I breed overhousing only for myself, but for the breed itself. 
I want the breed itself to improve. I want the breed itself to push forward. Um, and if if my herd can be part of the catalyst for that, I'm certainly not saying that my herd is the sole catalyst, and I'm saying that it's part of that. But um, if I feel that a doe is not going to be able to contribute to the gene pool of the breed, I'm not even going to sell her the um, backyard family elder. It can go to the Amish unregistered where her sons and her daughters will never contribute to the, the greater registered gene pool. Um, and uh, feet and legs are another big thing. Um, if they have, uh, you know, really sloppy or bad feet and legs right away as a first freshener, uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll give them a couple shots of maybe Bosey and a copper bolus and, you know, give that two or three months, well, or two or three weeks, excuse me, to hopefully improve after the freshening. Um, some of the ligaments can, can soften up a little bit, so I don't try to look too harshly that first week or two right after they freshen. And certainly those first fresheners take a couple weeks to start coming into their productivity anyways. But uh, then after that two to three weeks, if those feet and legs or you know, a massive shoulder issue or something, um, then again, those are right away on my call list. And so I try to weed, for me, I try to weed as many of them out as first fresheners as I can. Um, while also kind of keeping in mind, I'm going to keep anywhere from three to four um, that will maintain into their uh, second freshening here. And then I'll look at them again, say whether I need to whittle out the second fresheners a little bit, or if they all get to stay and um, just cut a little bit harder from either the older does or from maybe some of the younger does. Well, I don't want to cut you off here, Kurt. I don't want to cut you off, Grace. But we're going to treat this. We're going to give it the Game of Thrones red wedding treatment. Where oh, this is part of one. course. Of part course. one. <laughs> and next week will have to be part two, folks. Um, so we can touch on a lot more about culling. Because this is something that a lot of our listeners have asked us to retouch on. Uh, we did have culling as a purpose way back when. But this is a lot more comprehensive, as you can tell. Uh, so I'm really excited to get part two out there for everybody as well. And yeah, it's it's going to be enjoyable. Daniel, what do you think? I think that's a great idea. And so, yes, tune in next week for the part two with Kurt and Grace on culling. All right. Well, Grace Toy of Hops and Lops Farm and Dr. Kurt Schnipke of Overboard Dairy Goats, Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedules and joining us today. Uh, and we will look forward to continuing this next week. Oh, absolutely. And thanks again for inviting me to be back on. Um, I love, you know, coming on the podcast and sharing what bits of information I might have. And again, I think it's important to note that um, what works for one herd will not work for all herds, but this is, um, you know, what works for me is what works for me. And if it maybe works for somebody else as well, then that's, that's great. You can, you know, hopefully take information and run with it. But, you know, ultimately you have to know your number, you have to know your management style, you have to know your finances, your energy, your blood, sweat, and tears that you're willing to put into this. And that will help to kind of guide your own unique, uh, not only management, but calling style as well. Yeah, and I agree. And hopefully it gives kind of gives people the confidence and just kind of a look into other people's minds who are managing larger herds and 
um, can start to make some of those decisions for your own. Yeah, that's what makes this episode so unique is that we have four very different breeders in different stages of their programs coming together, bouncing ideas off each other and giving their own wisdom or maybe in some of our cases, mostly mine, lack of wisdom. Uh, and yeah, I hope that people use this as a tool and listen a couple times and really take this for what it is, which is awesome information. Uh, so Danielle, we are on the old interwebs. Uh, we have some socials. We have a tiki talkie. Where can do the kind folks, <laughs> we do, where can the kind folks uh, find us? All right. Well, you can find us on Facebook. If you search ringside American dairy goat podcast, on Instagram, we are ringside underscore go underscore podcast. You can find John and occasionally me, but mostly John on TikTok. If you search ringside podcast, we are there. We are constantly putting out new videos. They're great. Watch them. Be sure to follow. Um, I think that's what you do on TikTok, but um yeah they are there yeah. tiktok is as we've said john's brainchild um and so there's a lot of fun videos there and you'll continue to see mostly him and he'll keep twisting my arm and occasionally there'll be a video of me or that i'll contribute but um you know, it's a fun platform. There's a lot going on there. And then we have our website, dairygoatpodcast.com. You can get our merch there as well. And then as always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Feel free to give us a old follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And if your platform lets you rate and review, go ahead and leave one for us. We like to hear the feedback. Uh, I'd like to give the great goat a thanks for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Make sure you check them out. And everybody, this has been Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast. I'm John. And I'm Danielle. We'll catch you on the next one. Ringside, an American Dairy Goat podcast is not an affiliate of the American Dairy Goat Association. All opinions or information regarding the ADGA does not represent the registry.